And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. This is the word of the Lord. Would you um, please stay, remain standing as we pray? Father, those are big words. Those are sacred, weighty words. And we would beg you that by your spirit, you would soften our hearts to believe them, to receive them, that they would shape our imaginations, that all of us together would give ourselves fully to you. Open the eyes of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Ronnie. Let me just actually begin this morning by reading you a short passage in the Old Testament in the book of Job. Job is um, an epic poem that tells a true story about a man who knows about suffering. And this is what it says. This is in Job chapter 1. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What did Job believe about God? That when the worst possible tragedy came to him, the only appropriate response he could possibly think of was falling on his face to worship. For several months now, we've been studying the book of Hebrews. And there's this one theme that, it refer, that reaffirms time and time again in every chapter, and it is this. It is that Jesus is superior. 
He, he is superior. He's a superior prophet. Prophet. He's a superior priest. He is the superior king. He is superior to all the treasures in this life. In fact, he is superior to life itself. And nothing, there's nothing as valuable as Jesus. And so he says, don't give up. Jesus is totally worth it. That's the message of Hebrews. And this morning in chapter 12, we're, we're coming to the climax of this book. That's the message that's repeated over and over again because the original audience who first received Hebrews was on the brink of giving up. Bad news, suffering, injustice all came to them, and they weren't sure if they wanted to worship Jesus. I mean, they, they, they professed to be Christian, but it was becoming increasingly difficult to maintain their loyalty to Jesus. And so they asked, is Jesus really worth it? I mean, is he really superior to everything, really? Have you ever asked that question? See, most of us, right, we find Jesus interesting. Jesus offers us forgiveness, and we like it. I mean, who wouldn't? See, the Bible tells us that salvation is free, but that following Jesus will cost us everything. You feel the tension there? And that means we've got to surrender everything to the Lord. But most of us are like the original audience. We like Jesus, but we're unsure if he's actually superior to life itself. And, and in our times of pain, our loyalty and our bond with Jesus is tested to uh, see if it's real. And here's how this works. When we experience pain or injustice or suffering... If in those moments we're not supremely anchored to God, then we will feel this strong inclination to disassociate from the Lord. Instead of running to him, we'll run away from him. And listen, we've all seen it ha happen, haven't we? People who've attended services, they leave church, they leave Jesus because of their broken dreams, because of conflict. And their suffering is more compelling, more powerful than their vision of Jesus. And we want Jesus when life is easy, but when it gets hard, if it costs us something to follow Jesus, then we opt out. We all have people that we love that have opted out, don't we? And, and what's the reason? I suppose there's many, but one theme that you'll hear a lot is this. If God is good... Why would he allow me to go through the suffering? I mean, why would he allow that to happen? You've heard that, haven't you? What's behind that question? I mean, what are, the, what are the presuppositions that have to be accepted first to even give birth to that question? Maybe we could respond to their question with a question. Does your concept of God, is it big enough to allow for suffering and pain? In this life? Is your version of God big enough to permit, to accept a life of pain and suffering? If not, you'll give up when sadness, when tragedy, when unmet longings, when injustice hits your life. And those things will come. Life is hard. It's filled with all kinds of suffering. And the question is, is 
your vision of Jesus big enough? And this chapter 12 is particularly helpful. Chapter 12 offers us this lens to reinterpret all of our suffering in this life. We're going to see God presented as a father who takes the suffering of this world and he uses it to discipline those he loves, his children. And what's that mean for us? If we experience loss and suffering and injustice and pain, we are all offered this opportunity to reinterpret that, that pain, as this like cosmic declaration of his fatherly love for us. Crazy, right? Like, isn't that who does? That's crazy. It's true. Now listen, don't, don't misunderstand me. Let me say this up front. What I'm not saying is God is inducing evil things in order to accomplish other goals of his. In fact, it's really hurtful to just quote Romans 8.28 when a person is in pain, right? Just don't be like, well, God's just working all things together for the good. Like, don't say that in that moment. It's really insensitive. It's tone deaf. That's actually not a helpful response. And what we're learning this morning is not that. What we're learning is that God does not waste our tears. God doesn't waste our pain. In fact, we're actually invited to be sad and to grieve. We don't just flippantly explain away our pain, pain, and our tears, because in them they have lessons for us. That's what this passage is about. Our sadness and our grief train us. It deepens our love, and even better, it deepens God's love in us. Pain is God's way of getting his glory and his greatness deep into our souls. And so we don't avoid it. Rather, we, just, we let it train us. We allow it to discipline us. And that's the word that we're considering this morning. Discipline. Discipline is a confusing word. So we're going to study it this morning. So in the following moments, uh, we're going to consider four aspects of discipline. So note takers, here we are. We're going to look at how discipline is training, not retribution. Discipline is evidence that we are sons and daughters. Three, discipline produces righteousness. And then four, we must not take discipline lightly. So let's begin with the first one. Discipline is training, not retribution. So in our text this morning, that word discipline appears nine times. And in order to understand this passage, you got to get your brain around this concept, this word. Now, in the Greek, the word discipline is uh, paiduo. So the word paideia means like young child, and paiduo is like a discipline of a young child. Uh, it's, um, it's, we get from this root the word in English, uh, pediatrician. We have a few pediatricians. It's actually a helpful correlation because it gives us a, a glimpse into the proper understanding of the word discipline. For instance, what, what is it that pediatricians do? They're doctors who identify problems in children and seek to heal them, right? That's to say they, they seek to put the child's body in good order so that it can function correct, so that the child can accomplish the purposes for which God has made that little one. That's the essence of discipline. 
Discipline is meant to restore. It's meant to train. The difficulty for us as modern Denverites is the only concept in our minds that we have when we hear the word discipline is retribution. We think exclusively in terms of punishment, right? So if a child misbehaves, they get disciplined, right? They get a punishment as if justice is being exacted upon the child for his bad deed. Well, this Greek word paiduo has a much more nuanced meaning. The author says there in verse 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And then in verse 7, he exhorts the audience to what? Endure hardship as if it were discipline. The idea being conveyed is that is that their suffering, their trials, their tribulations, all of that's not punishment in the sense that we think about it. Rather, it's training. So, for instance, people who do a lot of exercise, right, they use these words. For instance, a trainer will tell the athlete to be disciplined. And why does he say that? I mean, how does that work? Well, think about lifting weights, which I do, you know, every 12 months or so. After you, lift, after you lift weights, a good, solid weight lifting, do you feel stronger or do you feel weaker? Because after I lift weights, I can barely lift a pencil, right? We feel weaker, but the truth is, regardless of how we feel, we're actually growing stronger, right? When we're weak, then we are strong, right? You see how that works? So to finish a race, you have to be training as hard because it makes you feel weak, but you won't be able to compete and complete the race unless you have certain moments of training when you're exerting yourself more than normal. And training and discipline keeps you from becoming flabby and out of shape. And so the author is saying, finish the race, persevere with Jesus, but to do so, we must undergo discipline and training. And the discipline makes us stronger. That's why the author is describing suffering and trials in terms of discipline. Uh, this does not mean that it's not painful, but simply that it has this really function in our lives. Now just think about this. Why are suffering and difficulties necessary? Here's why. Because you are a shallow and immature person without them. People who have never suffered, real talk here, are a little bit obnoxious, right? We see them on TV all the time. We, we call them influencers, right? TikTok, right? They've never suffered, and they're a little obnoxious. They don't understand the real world. The Lord's discipline trains us, grows us. Difficult for us is that most of us struggle to see God as a father, right? We, we see him more as a judge, and as a result, God's discipline feels like punitive and pointless and even heavy-handed. Our text says that hardship makes us more like Christ, and we don't believe it. And so when God disciplines us and trains us, we're like, here's just a new punishment. And sadly, you know, Christians are influenced more by this concept of karma than we are influenced by the gospel. How so? So karma is this belief that what goes around comes around, right? If I could simplify, it's like a cosmic ledger. One time a father was in the hospital because his son was in a terrible accident. Now the pastor was with the family and the father pulls the pastor aside 
And he says, Pastor, I know what's going on. God is punishing my son because of my sin. That's a startling statement, isn't it? Can you imagine that man's concept of God? That sentiment is like sort of mixed with karma, right? Well, this pastor knew better, and he warmly responds, and he says, listen, God is not putting the penalty of your sin on your son because he put the penalty of your sin on his son. That's the gospel. And so we got to resist the temptation to see suffering and trials as retribution from God. It's discipline, it's training, and suffering can train us in discipline if you will receive its lessons. And if you don't, you will shake your fist at God. Don't misinterpret suffering. And when you've been trained by suffering, you'll run the race with more endurance. Discipline is not retribution, it's training. That's the first point. Discipline is also evidence, this point two, uh, that we are sons and daughters. So it has that function. It's evidence of our relationship with God. Look at verses 6 through 9. Look back in your Bibles or in your bulletins. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that, whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? All right, can you follow the line of argumentation there? You see what he's doing? When people experience season of, seasons of difficulty, they tend to ask a really important question. Why is God treating me this way? Normally, that question is really loaded with resentment against God. Most, remember, most people's concept of God is not big enough to allow for pain and suffering. Nevertheless, it is an important question. Why is God treating me this way? And so the author of Hebrews gives us permission to reinterpret those trials of this life as this cosmic declaration that we're absolutely loved. And it's crazy that you have permission to interpret your sad days like that. There literally, there's no other religion that does that. It says, hey, are you having a hard day? God totally loves you. Like, no one does that. Just Christians. It's evidence of God's love. Now listen, I want y'all to not hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This doesn't mean that we should just absolutely desire suffering, right? Christians aren't masochists. We're not trying to inflict pain on ourselves. We're not flogging ourselves. That's not what's going on here. Christians acknowledge pain and sadness for what it is. It is really sad. And in fact, to not acknowledge the pain is to not take it seriously. I'm going to get to that later. But let me just illustrate the point because I think it will help us. I, I, I think I've shared this with you before. When my son was younger, he was on a playground playing with a friend. friend's name was Ben. So my son, Ben, started picking on another little kid. And uh, he was acting in a way he knows is wrong. So I got his attention. I said, hey, we need to go inside so that he could receive his training, his discipline, right? Uh, so he looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, Ben was doing it too. And I said, I'm not Ben's daddy. 
I'm your daddy, and I only discipline my children, right? And in that moment, my discipline is actually evidence of a very special relationship between the two of us. When I was in high school, there was a kid who everyone thought that his parents were the cool parents. Y'all, 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 everyone has someone who has the cool parents. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, why did we think his parents were so cool? It's because his parents let him do whatever he wants. Right? He's even allowed to, they're even let him, let his, their, their son use the house to have these massive parties for like 15-year-olds with tons of alcohol. The cool parents. They literally allowed him to do whatever he wanted. So it was about 12 years ago now. I was at my 10-year high school reunion. A little bit more than that. I caught up with this guy. And I said, hey, how are your parents doing? Thought I would ask. I learned that he is completely estranged from his parents, and he hates them. That's the word he used. You see why? The fact that his parents didn't care what he did was evidence that they simply didn't care. Right? The two go together. The fact that they didn't care means they didn't care. But our Heavenly Father... Oh, he cares. He infinitely cares. And the evidence of his love is his discipline. He doesn't want us to become superficial people. He doesn't want us to be selfish. God doesn't want us to do whatever we want because we're naturally self-destructive. We would hurt ourselves and ultimately experience deep resentment towards our Father in heaven. And so he disciplines us. And yeah, it hurts. But it confirms that we are loved by our Father. Can you, in faith, receive pain, troubles, injustice against you and interpret it that way? Can you do that? That's what chapter 12 is inviting us to do. All right, the next point, point three, is related to the second one. So we learn that discipline is training, and we learn that discipline is evidence of a loving and special relationship. Now we learn that discipline produces righteousness. Here's what we need to know about God. God is infinitely more concerned about my sanctification than I am, right? I don't want discipline. I don't want training that's going to make me hurt. I want success. I want happiness. But God wants holiness. He'll like, I'm totally willing to forfeit happiness for holiness. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. Hebrews Starting verse 10, or chapter 12, verse 10, look what it says. It says, for they disciplined us, fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now see that? God loves you. If you're in the family, if, he, if he's chosen you, then God will pierce through your broken humanity like a surgeon, open wide your chest, and he will put his greatness and his glory deep in you, and it might hurt a little. God will sanctify you at all costs. He is preparing us on this side of heaven to live with Jesus for eternity. 
but the training starts now. You know, humanity is like a, a corn with its husk, right? The husk has to be ripped away in order to get to the corn, right? The Lord is a terrific farmer. He's a terrific gardener. So gardeners have to prune their plants, right? What's pruning? Pruning is the selective removal of parts of the plant in order to improve and maintain the health of the plant. So a gardener is going to remove all the diseased and damaged and non-productive parts of the plant in order that the plant would flourish. But there's a little bit of cutting that happens. And the principal agent that God uses to prune us is trials, tragedy, and injustice. And spiritual pruning is not pointless. It's so important for you to get your brain around this. Trials have a way of like liberating us from trivial and superficial things of this world. See, listen, we tend to obsess about things that are just not important. Our time and money and emotional energy are often invested in really dumb things. And suffering just wakes us up. It sobers us up and it sanctifies us. I promise you, listen to me. If you get a brain tumor, if you get the call and you learn that you have a brain tumor, you will do a massive review of what you think is truly important in this life. Right? Suffering has a way of helping us reorganize our lives around what is truly important. It clears away, it prunes all of the idolatrous clutter. Like, nobody loses a child and says, gee, I wish I worked more. Gee, I wish I could have driven a nicer car. Right, I'm super upset I didn't even watch the last episode of my favorite show. Like, no one says that. Suffering liberates us from trivial things. And it liberates us from our dumb self-addiction and selfishness. And it trains us to not take ourselves too seriously. It gives us perspective. It makes us holy. It makes us holy. That's what it says there in verse 11. It says that it, it yields. It's not pleasant, but it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen, you guys. God loves you just the way you are. He does. But he loves you so much, he's not going to leave you the way you are. You see that? Righteousness and holiness matter a lot. Not, not so that we can become Pharisees and go around judging people who don't live up to our standards. That's not what's going on here. Righteousness and holiness are produced by suffering. And it helps us, and here's the word, it helps us to see God clearly. Look at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. For the holiness without wit and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And do you know why? Do you know why you can't see the Lord without it? Because your Savior, Jesus, he suffered too. Injustice, tragedies. And so when we suffer, listen, we don't suffer for God in some mysterious way. You're suffering with God. And thus you're participating in his suffering and you're made holy through it. Have you ever, has someone ever said something really unique about you and you say, I feel seen by you. I feel seen by you. That's what God's saying. When you're suffering, you're seeing me. 
You're seeing me. And so we see the Lord most clearly when there's tears in our eyes and our hearts are breaking. Those who suffered are made holy by its lessons. Those same people have the sweet gift of experiencing Jesus in a really special way. Uncontrollable sobs of a broken heart are evidence of the deepest communion with Jesus. Let me conclude my sermon with our fourth and final point. And it's this, we must not take discipline lightly. Look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. And what's this mean? This verse is exhorting us to respond appropriately to suffering. And so the question is, what is an appropriate response to suffering and injustice and sadness? Well, first, the first, uh, let, me, let me, I should say, let me give us two responses that are not appropriate because these are probably pretty common. I want to say them for us. First, don't, don't pretend that you're not hurt, right? Right, you can try to be tough, you can be stoic, pretend as if tragedy doesn't affect you, right? It's really sad when Christians project a fake spirituality by suggesting that people of faith should just be happy, clappy, like, no big deal, God's in control. Don't be that guy. It's terrible. That's not what Christian, that's not what's calling to do, calling us to. You know, one time my son was misbehaving. And I told him that he had lost his, his privilege to go to the pool. So he storms to his room, and like before slamming the door, he yelled at me and goes, well, I didn't want to go to the pool anyway. Right? Now he's trying to show me. What is he doing by that? Well, he's saying, your discipline is not going to affect me. Right? He rejected my lesson by rejecting the disappointment. Like, I'm not even disappointed. I didn't want to even go. That's one extreme, pretending like you're not hurt. The other extreme is despairing. Sadness and tears are very appropriate. But despair, that's actually something different. Despair comes from a different place. Despair is the fruit of a person who has lost hope. Despair comes, and listen to me on this one, when someone has lost their God. When suffering and trials come and they take away the thing that gave that person significance and value and identity, that's when despair sets in. When the thing that gives your life meaning is gone, then the only response is despair. But if the true source of your significance and identity and value comes from God then no amount of tragedy can ever take that away. So if your God is an object or a dream in this world, then despair is a very real possibility. There is nothing that death cannot take away. 
Despair implies that there's no hope for a better future because your God has died or has been taken away. Now, it's interesting, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul has a very different approach. He resists both extremes, right? And he, both responses to the Lord's discipline. He says, and we are afflicted in every way, yes, but not crushed. We're perplexed. Yeah, we're totally lost. God, what are you doing? I don't know. But we're not driven to despair, Paul says. So he doesn't pretend to be happy, but neither does he jump into the abyss of despair. How come? Because for Paul, God is really really big like really big like when he's like jesus is superior he's like I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly what that means and i'm gonna follow that logic to its nth degree he believes that god himself sovereignly holds the future in his hands god is in control even of the most regrettable and unfortunate tragedies in this world the ones that awaken our deepest sobs let me, let me illustrate, for, illustrate this for you, because this is, this is really important that you understand that God is in control all the time. You, you have to believe this. In the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, there's this really famous story about Joseph. So Joseph was one of the 12 brothers of Jacob is later called Israel, right? From which the 12 tribes come. So J Joseph was like this arrogant kid. And his father shows him favoritism. He even gave him a special coat of like many colors. There's this Broadway musical made after this. Anyone, Jesus, uh, Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat, anyone? All right, there's a few of us. Well, Jacob's or Joseph's father's favoritism was very destructive. And so Joseph became very obnoxious, and he was really obnoxious with his brothers, and he was in the process of really becoming a terrible person, if we could just say it clearly. He had dreams that his brothers would, like, bow down to him, and he thought, you know what, I'm going to totally tell my brothers about this dream. Well, this sets off a series of tragedies in Joseph's life. Joseph's brothers nearly killed him, they actually sell him off into slavery, and then they tell their father that he's dead. Terrible tragedy. Then he's purchased as a slave by this guy named Potiphar who lived in Egypt. And even though he started to do pretty well as a slave, Potiphar's wife wanted to have an affair with him. He refused, and she makes a false charge against him saying that he tried to rape her. And he was ruthlessly, falsely, un unjustly thrown into jail terrible tragedy while in jail he meets these guys he's able to interpret their dreams and simply asked that they would be remembered so that he could be released from jail like i'm gonna help you out just remember me he was deliberately forgotten had to stay in jail terrible tragedy listen you guys joseph spent his 20s in jail like his 20s in jail as an innocent person. And at every turn in the story in Genesis, the author is constantly noting that Joseph is weeping bitterly. Five or six times we are told he weeps bitterly. 
Like, Joseph is not a stoic. He allows the unjust situation to affect him. Like, he's affected, he's shaped by these tragedies. And finally, he ends up interpreting another dream for the Pharaoh. And ultimately, he's promoted as the second most powerful person in Egypt. And after all of this tragedy, he's no longer that immature, obnoxious young man he was in his teens. And then there grew, there's this great famine in, in all the land. And his brothers, yeah, the ones who almost killed him and sold him off into slavery, those same brothers come to Egypt because they're looking for food. Guess who they had to ask for permission to get the food? They had to go through Joseph. What does it tell us about Joseph? He weeps bitterly again. This is a man whose life is marred with suffering. And his brothers are afraid that Joseph is going to exact punishment, kill him. But what does he say? Like, would y'all remember those famous words in Genesis 50? What does he say? He says, no, no, no. You, brothers, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. You see the implication? Like beyond, behind all the evil, real evil, and suffering that came at the hands of evil people, God was so sovereign over all of it. Did Joseph weep? Yes. Did Joseph despair? No. Joseph did not take lightly the discipline, the training of the Lord. He learned from the lessons of suffering, and it changed him from an obnoxious and superficial person to an incredible man. He didn't scoff. He didn't scoff at suffering. His concept was, of God was big enough to allow the suffering. What about you? What about you? Because, like, I know, I know some of your stories. And you have experienced a deep, deep suffering, and a deep sadness, a holy sadness, a discipline from the Lord. What has it produced in your life? Does it make you cynical? Or does it strengthen your loyalty to the Lord? Hebrews says, don't take it suffering. Let it strengthen your wobbly, weak knees. Listen and listen to its lessons. Because if you listen deep enough, what you'll hear is, I love you. You're his child. And because of Jesus, not one tear, not one sob will be wasted. You believe the gospel? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I knew that these were weighty, hard, hard words. Give us faith to reorganize our lives, to experience and to swim in the deep, deep love that you have for us. And we know you love us because your son, too, is 
one who wept bitterly and suffered and bled. You know, Father, what it's like to lose a child. You know what it's like to have injustice perpetrated against you. You know what it's like to have everything taken from you and not grow cynical. And greatness be the fruit of it. Oh, Lord, put that greatness in us. Lord, because I know if you will work in our hearts here at Denver Press, if you would do that in our hearts, we could really change Denver because, Lord, I know that our neighbors are hurting too. But they don't know where to take their tears, Lord. But we do. We know where to take our tears. Help us. Give us faith. We offer this humbly. We offer ourselves humbly to you. We pray all these things in the sweet name of Jesus, our suffering Savior. Amen.